Hello everyone and welcome to episode 33 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And as promised, I am trying to branch out and not just cover US and UK cases. And so today we are venturing over to France to discuss a case that happened in 2005. Uh, I would like to apologise in advance for what I know is going to be some incredibly poor French pronunciations uh, because I took GCSE German for the sole reason that I know my French accent is terrible. So please forgive me for what is about to happen. (laughs) As always, all the sources are used are linked in the description box. However, I must note that a large bulk of the research from this case has come from a documentary which can be found on Amazon Prime called Trapped by the Internet. So this case starts on Monday the 2nd of May 2005 at around 5.45pm when the police in Egmont received a phone call from a 63-year-old man named Dominique Tarasco. Dominique told the officer who answered the call that there was a man armed with a gun who had just left his house to kidnap a girl. He said this armed man was heading to Bar de Lascale in the centre of Egmont in a green Sayet Ibiza and that the police should head there now to stop the kidnapping. He said a man and a woman would be sat at the bar and that that woman would be in grave danger. So Dominique has said that this armed person has left his house, his being Dominic's house. Uh, Yes, sorry, yeah. Right, got you. So he must be... Okay, no, jumping ahead, carry on. (laughs) Okay. Um, so Dominic Tarasco, the man on the phone, was known to the police as he was a police informant. Dominic ran an exclusive nightclub that hosted celebrities and criminals alike. And in return for him passing information to the police about the potential illegal activities of his acquaintances, the police turned a blind eye to the somewhat illegal way in which Dominique ran his nightclub. His informing had led to the arrests of several thieves and minor drug traffickers, but the police had never received information about a crime as serious as this. Due to this relationship with the police, they took his phone call very seriously, especially when Dominique started talking about prostitution rings and rape, and he seemed incredibly flustered and very scared for this girl's safety. The police set up surveillance outside the bar to keep an eye out for the green Seatabitha and placed officers inside the bar, posing them as members of the public sitting and having a drink. Unfortunately, because it was a bank holiday weekend, the bar was incredibly busy, There were lots of couples around and the police were seemingly looking for a needle in a haystack. They had no idea what the woman or man looked like and there were male and female couples sat all around them. The police stayed for over an hour, but with no leads and no sign of the green sea at Ibiza outside the front of the bar either, they felt they had no choice but to leave. Would you drive to a bar though? Like, why is that what they're... I mean, I know they've not got a lot else to go on, but... What do you mean? Oh, because, well, I think it's because they're just going literally off what Dominic said and that they need to look out for this car. But I think the way that it's located, it's not like a bar, probably how you're imagining it. It's kind of like a, almost like a cafe. Like it's like this big, like central area and there's like car, like basically cars parked all around this kind of like central area. Um, And I guess if you imagine it like a cafe, it's got outdoor seating and indoor seating. Um, But presumably it serves alcohol. (laughs) That was exactly what I was imagining anyway. (laughs) Great. (laughs) So the officers phoned Dominique back and asked him for a description of the man they should be looking for. But Dominique refused to tell them who the man was, citing that he was a dangerous psychopath and he would not give the police his name. The officers explained that the bar was inundated with couples having drinks and that there was no sign of a green sea Ibiza. At this point in the phone call, Dominique swore and said that he realised he'd given the police the wrong description of the car. He said that the car wasn't a green Seat Ibiza. Instead, it was a grey Citroen ZX, a completely different car. 
Yes. So mm. the police at this point were between a rock and a hard place. They could stay and they could keep an eye out for a grey ZX. But so much time had already passed. It was very likely that the man had already taken the woman and that they'd completely missed it because they'd been looking out for a different vehicle entirely. Investigators decided to cool off their search and return to the station. They wrote up their report, citing no leads, no information and no suspicious activity. And subsequently, they dropped their case. At 1am, 22 hours after the search was called off, Dominique began his journey home from a long dinner and drinks that he'd attended. On his journey home, he drove past a fountain, and just beyond that, he came across a police roadblock. Not knowing that the search for the man and woman had been called off, he thought the roadblock was there to search cars for the kidnapped girl and that grey Citroen ZX. Sorry, so he's been informed of a kidnapping and is really flustered, but he's still gone out for dinner. Yes. But then also he's someone who uh, spends a lot of time with... Sorry, there's loads of fireworks going off in the background. If anyone can hear that, I'm not going to be able to edit that out. Um, We are recording on fireworks night, stupidly. Um, He's someone who is... Uh, like heavily connected with criminals and like drug rings and things like that. I uh, think yeah. it's not really like too much of a shock to him that someone that he obviously knows has left his house with a gun saying that he was going to like kidnap a girl. So he he really, he told the police because he was informing, but informing on his like criminal friends is something that he was doing all the time. Yeah. Um. So at this roadblock, Dominic got out of his car and started shouting, where is it? Where is the ZX? Have you found the girl? He was clearly intoxicated and the officers looked at him confused and a bit annoyed. They were just there to perform routine traffic stops and they had no idea who this man was. They were obviously not the same investigators that had been on the phone to him earlier or who had scouted out the bar and no police memo had been put out regarding this supposed crime or to look out for the ZX because they'd not found any correlating information to suggest a crime had taken place. The officers tried to calm Dominic down. He was clearly intoxicated and mumbling about bizarre things they had no idea about. Dominic was beginning to get quite calm. And then, all of a sudden, he became incredibly animated and started shouting and pointing at a car driving past. Because he was talking to the officers outside his vehicles, cars weren't being searched and stopped. And, what would you know, at that exact moment, a grey Citroen ZX manoeuvred slowly around the roadblock and as it passed by the officers and Dominique, he was able to look through the window and saw the man he had called the police about and a young woman resting her head against the window as if she were asleep. Dominique started shouting, do something, arrest him, stop him now. But the officers had no understanding of what he was talking about and even if they were to believe this drunk, mumbling man, they couldn't arrest him as they'd not seen him do anything wrong. Whilst the police tried to calm Dominic down, his phone rang. He stepped to the side and answered it, and the person on the other end of the phone was the man who had been driving the grey Citroen ZX that had just passed the officers. I knew it, he's just seen him snitching, right? No, so he didn't oh. he hadn't actually seen him. He said to him, Where are you? To which Dominic just replied, I'm out. And then the man said, Well, watch out when you go home past the fountain because there are cops everywhere. And then after this, he basically hung up. But he'd not seen Dominic because he was stood behind the police officers. But Dominic had been able to see him. Yeah. Yes, very lucky. Um, So what this phone call did essentially was prove to Dominic that the car who had just driven past, um, and obviously he thought that it was the man and the young kidnapped woman as well, uh, but it obviously affirmed to him that it was them. Um, So he shouted to the officers to go and chase the car, but they were just getting increasingly more annoyed at this seemingly drunk man spouting nonsense, and they told him to get back in his car and drive away. What? He's drunk. (laughs) It's France, baby. (laughs) (laughs) 
So two days later, on May 4th, 130 kilometres away in Marseille, a man named Sylvain walked into a police station and reported the disappearance of his wife, 28-year-old Elodie Morel. He told the officer there that he hadn't seen or heard from his wife for two days and he was worried she had walked into a trap. He explained that 15 days ago, Elodie, a part-time waitress, had signed up to a casting agency for a modelling job. He said she'd come across the advert online and that it had stated that this modelling agency were looking for a woman to become the face of Rolls-Royce. Elodie had applied for the job and sent her photos off to be considered. He said that the next day after she'd applied, a woman named Nicole Forestier responded and explained that she was the photographer and that Elodie had gotten the job. Sylvain said that his wife Elodie was completely over the moon and that the job offered a salary of €5,000 for just five days' work, much more money than Elodie had ever dreamed of earning. Sylvain explained that the photo shoot was to take place in Camargue and she was to meet the photographer for her initial meeting and discuss the shoot. The meeting was to take place at that bar de la Scale at the port of Aigues the exact same bar that Dominique Tarasco had sent the police to. Ooh... Elodie and Sylvain had a son together, and Elodie hadn't been away from her baby for more than a day before. She told Sylvain that five days away seemed too long, but Sylvain told her to go and chase her dream. Oh, God. Elodie had packed her bags and driven her black BMW to Egmont on the morning of May 2nd, ready for her initial meeting with Nicole Forestier. On that same evening at 9.30pm, Sylvain received a text from Elodie in which she'd said, Big kiss, everything is going well. I'll call you tomorrow when I can. Hugs and kisses, talk later. The next day, Sylvain had tried to call his wife, but the call kept going through to her answering machine. He left message after message, but she never called back. He told the police that he thought his wife had disappeared because she'd been taken. He told the police to check prostitution networks and go to the borders and stop her being taken abroad. The officer silenced his demands and asked him for more information on his marriage with his wife. He felt like Sylvain was holding back some vital information. Sylvain eventually revealed that he and his wife had been having some marital issues over the last few months. He said that they'd had their child and, instead of pulling their marriage together, it seemed to have just pushed them apart. He said they had recently separated and that they'd filed for divorce, although, for the sake of their son, the couple still lived together. He told the officers that none of this was relevant, he and Elodie were still on very good terms and he knew that she would not leave her baby behind. The officer disagreed. The general consensus of the police was that Elodie was a young, attractive female, out by herself without the constraints of motherhood, and in their minds, it was very plausible that she might have just met a man and might have been out having a good time. What? Not for that long? Mm, well, exactly. For two whole days. And also, if all of those things are true, like she's a young, attractive female, then she's also equally quite vulnerable yeah exactly completely because she's by herself in a place that she doesn't know and she doesn't live yeah so the officer was insistent that he would not launch an investigation but Sylvain refused to leave the station until someone did something therefore begrudgingly the officer opened a nationwide investigation into the disappearance of Elodie Morel a fax was sent out to all the police stations in the region with details of Elodie's disappearance and the information relating to where Elodie was supposed to have met that photographer Nicole Forestier that day, so still May 4th, the officers over in Egmont received the notification stating that Elodie Morel had gone missing from their area of France and that she was last known to be at the Bar de la Scale, the exact same bar the two officers had been sat in two days before on the lookout for a young woman who might have been a potential kidnap victim. They of course understood the gravity of the situation and knew it was much more serious than the officers in Marseille had realised. 
The officers got in contact with Sylvan and he provided them with as much information as he could. He told them about the job offer, about meeting at the bar and about the last text message he had received from Elodie at 9.30 on the evening of May 2nd. He also gave the officers Elodie's mobile number and they immediately started trying to track it. They found that her phone had pinged off a cell tower in Egmont and then in saint laurent des gouz Saint-Gilles and Vauvert during the night of May 2nd. For reference, this journey from Egmont through to Vauvert is about an hour's drive give or take, although it is a strange journey to take as it involves a lot of driving in the opposite direction to which they'd just gone, which is like a terrible explanation. Uh, what I'm trying to say is like the route wasn't just from A to B with a few stops off on the way. The route was like a zigzag, so they were kind of going back on themselves and then going somewhere else and then going back again, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so the last, uh, so after this, the last phone signal uh, pinged in Vauvert and then the trail went cold. With kind of very little options on what to do next, the officers went to Vauvert and set up base camp at the police station there, as this was, in their view, the last known location of Elodie Morel. They scoured the area for that grey Citroen ZX, however this proved incredibly difficult as they had no number plate for the car or any information about the possible driver. Did you say something? No, but I am wondering at this point, like, I know Dominic is scared, but do the, oh, the police not have any power? Like, ultimately, he knows exactly who the bloke is. Yeah. They eventually, they do have some power and eventually they do force it, but not until a bit later on. <laughs> yeah, because I would have thought, granted he might be scared for his life, but I also would have thought at this point he's perverting the course of justice. Yeah, I think he's perverting the course of justice. That's exactly what I would say as well. Um, But yeah, we'll go on to see kind of what happens, but they, yeah. Spoiler alert, he never gets charged of anything. (laughs) (laughs) So Sylvan then made his way to Egmont and took photos of Elodie with him. He told the police that Elodie was a fighter and very able to look after herself, and he had hopes that she would be able to escape from the man who had taken her. Unfortunately, in the grand scheme of things, the police realised that they really had next to nothing. They had Elodie's name, a slight inkling that she might have been in the Vauvert area, as that was where her phone had last pinged, and a potential grey Citroen ZX. They felt they had very little to go on, but they knew there was one man who could help them. As you said, Sal, Dominic Tarasco. (laughs) They phoned him back and demanded more information. They explained the severity of the situation and the fact that they now had a known missing girl. But still, he refused to identify the man in question. Therefore, the police felt they had no choice but to bring him in for a formal police interview. On Thursday the 5th of May 2005 at 8.30am, Dominic's police interview began. They told him that they needed his help, Elodie might still have been alive, and Dominic was the only person who could help them. Dominic kept refusing to give them the man's name. They explained that they would arrest him, but he still didn't crack. He sobbed and he cried, and he told the police that he would be killed if he revealed the name of the man, but the police didn't budge. They said that if Elodie was alive, it would be on his head if she died because he'd refused to out his acquaintance, and eventually Dominic cracked. Yeah, good. He revealed that the man was called Guillaume Mongo, a 49-year-old security guard who worked at Dominique's nightclub. The police discovered that this man had previously been jailed in 1997 for nine years for raping two German tourists. Oh, God. He had kidnapped them and drove them to a remote location and then spent the entire night raping them. He'd also had previous convictions for possessing guns and previous convictions of kidnap and attempted rape on two other female tourists who he'd also driven out to a remote location. Dominique confirmed that Guillaume was a violent, aggressive man and that he never went anywhere without a gun. This information made the police incredibly scared. Fearful that, if Elodie was still alive, the worst things were happening to her, the police convinced Dominique to help bring Guillaume out of the shadows. 
Dominic phoned Guillaume and arranged to meet at a specific point, a nightclub called La Mexicana. He told Guillaume that he would meet him in the car park of this abandoned nightclub situated between Nîmes and Egmort at 6pm, and Guillaume agreed. Dominic warned the police that Guillaume would not be alone and that he would have an accomplice with him. The police prepared themselves and lay in wait at the nightclub. At 6pm, Guillaume arrived in a white van. He pulled into a space and then got out of his vehicle and entered the nightclub. The police entered and tried to arrest him, but he escaped out of one of the doors. He started running, but he was not quick enough, and he was tackled to the ground by one of the officers. Oh my god, thank god, because I was like, otherwise, Dominique is a dead man. Yeah, 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 that's so true. So, upon his arrest, the police searched his pockets, and they found Elodie Morel's bank card in one of them. Guillaume had an explanation, though, and he said that he'd simply found the card in a bar and that he'd taken it with the intention of returning it. The police did not believe him and they took him to the police station, along with the man who had been in the van with him. His name was Richard Linier. Richard was not someone known to the police. He had no previous convictions or any ties to any sex trafficking organisation or any type of illegal business. Upon his arrest, Richard Linier explained that he was just with Guillaume because Guillaume was staying at his house. He said that this was a usual occurrence and whenever he was in town, he'd stay with Richard and his wife and daughter. Interested to finally learn where Guillaume had been hiding, the police immediately sent officers out to search the Linier's house. They arrived at the house and Richard's wife and daughter were sat eating dinner at the table. The police told them to stand up and told them it was a police raid, but strangely, the pair just continued to eat their dinner as if the police were not there, or almost as if they had been expecting them. They told them to stand up or they'd handcuff them, but still, they kept eating. How bizarre. Yeah, I know. So convinced that they must know something, they pulled the mother and daughter up from their seats, handcuffed them and stood them next to the wall whilst they searched the home. Isn't that so bizarre? Can you imagine doing that? No, and like for the mother, who knows, maybe, but I just can't imagine being able to keep composure as a child. Yeah, I think I think she was like, I think it's, it's never reported on like who the daughter is. So I think she was underage, but I get the impression that she was probably like 14. Like, I think she was like quite like a teenager, but still, yeah, for them to just both sit there, I think the police really, really did think um, that they they were just expecting, like they knew something bad had happened. Mm. So during their search of the home, the police found Elodie's dressing gown, two pairs of her shoes, a black top, her dress and her mobile phone. Unfortunately, the police didn't find Elodie. Just when things felt like they couldn't get much worse, the police found a very well-hidden gun, the handle of which was stained with blood. It seemed clear that something awful had happened in that home, and so the police arrested both Francine Linier and their teenage daughter and took them in for questioning. By 8pm on May the 5th, all four defendants had been placed in different rooms and were being questioned separately. Guillaume Mongo told the investigators that he had remembered meeting Elodie Morel at the Bar de la Scale and had spoken to her a bit, and then when she'd left and he'd seen that she'd left her bank card on the bar, he'd picked it up with the intention of returning it to her. In another room, the investigators were questioning Richard Linier. He was described as a very simple man who had never had any interaction with the police before, and so, really, it seemed that he might be the weak link to break the case. One officer bent down and whispered in Richard's ear, You know what happened here. I know you weren't involved, but you know what's happened to Elodie. To which Richard replied, yes. He told the police that Guillaume had turned up at Richard's house on May 1st at breakfast time. This wasn't unusual. He often turned up whenever he needed a place to stay. At some point during that day, Guillaume told the Liniers that he had a contract with someone he'd met inside prison to kill someone for the sum of €5,000. 
Richard told the police that after Guillaume had mentioned the contract to kill, he'd left the house at around 9pm. Richard said he watched Guillaume get into his ZX car and then he said he didn't see him again until the 3rd of May at 6am. Guillaume walked in at 6 that morning brandishing a gun and talking loudly. He said, help, I did something stupid, my plan went wrong. There is a girl in my car, I need to use your garage. The linear's garage was not attached to the house. Instead, it was situated in a block of garages a few hundred feet away from the house. Guillaume drove his car into the garage whilst Richard helped navigate him in. Richard said that he didn't hear any noises coming from the car and that he couldn't see anyone in the car, although he did say he didn't look in the boot. Guillaume asked Richard for some plastic cable ties and Richard obliged. Guillaume then said that he was going to sleep in the garage with the car and the girl to make sure she didn't shout. Oh, so she's alive. Yeah, well, that's what he's saying. This is the story of what Guillaume has said to Richard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Richard then said at this point that he left him there in the garage and walked back to his home. He said the next day he went to work as normal and he didn't intervene because he was just minding his own business. That evening, when Richard had arrived home from work, Guillaume came into the house at 6pm and asked for a bottle of water, stating, the girl is thirsty. Guillaume then said to Richard that he'd made the girl sniff, quote, the white powder... And in the police records from this interview, it states that Richard understood this to mean that Guillaume Mongo had drugged the girl. Guillaume took the bottle of water from Francine Linier and then he returned to the garage for another two hours. When he came back to the house for dinner, he bought with him, quote, presents for the family. These presents were Elodie Morel's clothes and personal belongings. This is bizarre. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why. I mean, I'm guessing that it's because they're all terrified of him, but the family just sound the strangest people ever. Yeah, I think it's a combination of being very frightened of him and also, I don't know if I can say this, but being like a bit simple. Like, I think they just they just don't see it as like their issue because it's nothing to do with them in their eyes. Like, it's not their business. That's how they just see it. Mm. Um, So Richard Linier's daughter took Elodie's mobile phone from Guillaume, excited because she'd needed one for a while. During dinner, whilst Francine was admiring the new shoes Guillaume had given to her and their daughter was playing on her new phone, Guillaume told the family that he needed to kill the girl, otherwise she might be able to incriminate him. In her police interview, Francine described that she'd asked Guillaume how he'd be able to kill the girl, and she said that Guillaume then made a strangling gesture and said, like this. I'm just going to wait for those fireworks to stop. Could go on for bloody ages. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, fireworks displays like 10 minutes. It could be ages. Well, it can't be a fireworks display. It's happening in my car park of like the block of flats. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, right, we're back. Back at the police station, the officers were relaying this entire series of events back to Guillaume Mongo, and soon it was clear to him that the gig was up and he'd been caught. Rather than doing the decent thing and just admitting what he'd done and telling the police where Elodie was, Guillaume Mongo came up with a new story. This time, he said that he remembered that he had in fact trapped Elodie by using an advertisement online for a modelling job. He admitted that he pretended to be Nicole Forestier, the lady who Elodie thought she was emailing and meeting. He described that Elodie had taken the bait, and when he'd received her email job application, he had this, quote, feeling inside that she was going to be the one. He said that he had arranged to meet her at Bar de la Scale and that she had arrived and met him. He said that Elodie had shown her surprise that he was a man, but he said that he'd managed to talk her round and said that he told her that he was Nicole's assistant. He explained to the officers that he had with him some camera equipment to deceive her into thinking that he was a photographer's assistant. 
After his meeting at the bar, he told her to get into his car so he could drive her around and show her the areas in which they were going to take the photos on their four-day-long photo shoot. He said that this entire plot had simply been to steal her bank card. Oh, my God. I was wondering where he was going with it. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. So he said that around 4.30am, he stopped in a remote location to attack her. Again, he said that he wanted to attack her in order to be able to steal the bank card. He said that Elodie then flinched or acted like she was going to pull away from him, and this gesture made him very angry. He said he lost control and started hitting her aggressively, and then he said he hit her head against the side of the passenger door. He claims, however, that after this, he let her go. Right. This story is obviously a lie, and it doesn't explain at all what he was doing in the garage for days, and it doesn't describe why Elodie's clothes were found in Alinea's house where he was staying. It also directly contradicts his own statement that he had that flash of, like, feeling inside when he'd seen Elodie's response to his online advertisement. Like, a flash feeling of what? That this was the bank card he was going to steal? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah, with no idea. Also, someone who's, like desperate for a work job i don't know why her bank card do you want no evidence of anything on it yeah well exactly like you don't actually know if she has any money like it's just so ridiculous thing i've heard yeah so whilst this series of interviews were going on other officers were searching the linear's garage inside they found cut up plastic cable ties footprints an empty bottle of water and cigarette butts inside the garage They took swabs of DNA from the plastic bottle and the cigarettes and sent these off to the lab for testing. They also found the grey ZX and inside that car they found a bag of white powder. After testing this white powder, it was determined it was made up of varying different sedatives. Unfortunately, despite all of this, the police had still not been able to find Elodie. They took this evidence and presented it to Guillaume. He finally admitted that he had taken her and that he had driven into the Linier's garage with Elodie in his boot. He said that he did this because it was a safe place for him to discuss a plan with her. He said this plan was in relation to him being able to keep her bank card in exchange for letting her live and not causing any trouble. He said Elodie was locked in the garage but she was completely free to move about and wasn't locked in the boot or tied up with the cable ties. He then said he waited until dusk when it was darker and they both got in the car to drive back to her car. During the drive, he claims that Elodie asked if she could drive or that he then asked her to drive. I'm not really sure which way it happened, but either way, he says some conversation happened which ended up with them parking the car, both getting out and exiting the vehicle in order to change seats. When they got out of the car, Elodie tripped Guillaume over and he fell to the ground and he said that he was so enraged he grabbed a piece of cord that was laying on the floor and that he used that to strangle Elodie. How is this a better story than the truth? I don't know. I don't know what crimes he thinks he's getting off from like he's still if this story is a story he still kidnapped someone still killed someone like do you know what i mean like you're still going away to tell them bloody happened yeah i reckon it's because of the sexual element i reckon he really doesn't want to admit that he like raped her or that he had like yeah he had a sexual motivation here because uh, yeah i guess in his mind it's better to kidnap someone and strangle them over a bank card than it is over you know sexual assault and rape um, yeah. But yeah, the police didn't believe it either, but they kind of knew that this might be their only chance to get information from him with regards to where LED was because now he was admitting that he had killed her. Uh, therefore, mm. they basically humoured him and they made out like they believed his story. And Guillaume told the investigators that he'd driven him and LED back to her car, which he said he parked in a cemetery car park in Egmont. The investigators located the car and inside the boot they found LED's body. <gasps> 
The post-mortem revealed that she had died as a result of strangulation and traces of sedatives were found in her system, consistent with the white powder found in Guillaume's car. The autopsy report detailed that Elodie had struggled before her death and fought back, as her husband Sylvain had thought she would. She had marks on her wrists that were consistent with being tied up and she had bruising to her head in a pattern that suggested she had been struck multiple times with the butt of a gun. On her clothes, traces of sperm and blood were found. The DNA tests on the water bottle found in the garage also revealed traces of Elodie's saliva mixed with traces of Guillaume Mongo's sperm, this evidence to the officers that she had been sexually assaulted. Oh my god. Despite being faced with the evidence that he had kidnapped Elodie, drugged her, raped her and then killed her, Guillaume Mongo denied the series of events and stuck by his story that her death had been an enraged accident. The police didn't care what he said, however, and he was arrested and detained in custody until his trial. Richard and Francine Lanier were also arrested. Their teenage daughter, however, was not. Almost three years later, on the 28th of January 2008, the trial began for the defendants, Guillaume Mongo, Richard Lanier and Francine Lanier, for the kidnap, rape and murder of Elodie Morel. Throughout the trial, Guillaume Mongo smiled and joked around and shocked the court with his brazen attitude. He didn't seem at all remorseful or saddened by the shocking details of torture and rape that were revealed during the court proceedings. He even went as far as to get on the stand and blame Richard Linier for killing Elodie, posing that Richard had been the mastermind behind the entire plot. This assertion caused Richard Linier to collapse in the courtroom. Suspecting that he'd had a heart attack, the trial was adjourned until the next day and Richard was taken to hospital. The next day, oh the trial continued and Richard was strangely brought in on a stretcher. The prosecution felt that this was a manipulation technique and explained to the jury in a clear statement that Elodie's bank card had been found with Guillaume Mongo, his sperm had been found with her saliva on her clothes, his car had her blood in it, she had met him at the bar, and therefore it was clear that Guillaume Mongo was the mastermind behind this horrific crime and Richard Linier was simply a naive accomplice. After this, on the stand, Guillaume Mongo changed his story for the sixth or seventh time and said that he had fallen in love with Elodie. He even went as far as to testify on the stand, I will love her until the day I die, which I think is absolutely disgusting. This man is insane. He is, and he's gross. That's an awful, disgusting, horrific thing to say about someone you've raped and murdered. Like, her family were there, her husband was there. Oh, it just makes me feel awful. So, at the end of the trial, Richard and Francine Linier were sentenced to six years in prison for their role in the kidnapping and for failing to alert the police as to what was going on. During the trial, they had insisted that they weren't guilty, claiming they hadn't seen or heard anything. The court said that not seeing anything was no excuse. They'd believed that a woman was being held in their garage and they had done nothing to intervene and save her. They appealed this sentence, but this ploy backfired and their sentence was instead increased to eight years in prison. Ooh. It's unclear what happened to their daughter. She was never named in the court proceedings, and so I assume that she was either too young to know what was happening or kind of like what I said earlier to you, Sal. I just think that she was probably underage or the police deemed that she had no involvement in the crime, but I assume she went into care or something like that. 51-year-old mm. Guillaume Mongo was given life in prison with a minimum term of 30 years. On appeal in 2010, this minimum term was lowered to 20 years and a maximum of 30 years imprisonment was given. He has never admitted to what he did. Dominique Tarasco, the original informant, was not charged by the police and was deemed to have no involvement in the crime, despite knowing what was going to happen and refusing initially to tell the police that Guillaume was involved. He does say he regrets not telling the police sooner, but he said that he hadn't known Guillaume would kill the girl. 
He has continuously said that all he'd known was that his friend was leaving his bar, having said that he was going to go out with a girl he'd met on the internet. He said he had simply had a bad feeling about it, but had not known enough details. He admits that Elodie might still be alive today had he told the police what he knew. That's crazy he didn't face any charges, I think. I know, and I think that's crazy too. I just think there's so many very suspicious things about his role in all of this. Because in the police, in the phone calls to the police, he is saying he seems incredibly adamant that a girl is in serious danger. And then kind of after this all happened, he was like, how was I meant to know? Like, he just said that he was going to meet a girl at a bar and I just had a bad feeling. Mm. It's like, that's not what you were saying. You were actually stipulating exactly what happened. Like, you told the police that he was going to kidnap and harm a girl, and that's exactly what he did. So it seems a little bit, yeah, ridiculous to then kind of backtrack on that and be like, oh, no, like, actually, sorry, I actually didn't realise that. I just had, like, a niggling feeling or whatever. Yeah, I think it's just, like, cowardice, though. That's the same reason he couldn't tell them in the first place, and now he just probably can't admit to what he's actually done. Yeah, I definitely agree. But that is actually all the information I have for you, because this case... I don't know, it was just incredibly hard to research. There's really only a handful of articles that have reported on this case. Um, so yeah, any questions from you, Sal? Um, no, I just think it's heartbreaking, really. I mean, incredibly so for Elodie's husband. Mm. I think always probably, well, definitely, it's always very distressing, isn't it, for someone to like lose their partner. But I can imagine that it would be so much more complicated and like so many more feelings of guilt and things, given like the, what they were going through Mm -hmm. but actually just amazing that he did manage to get the police to take this seriously because we have so many cases where the police just like haven't engaged or refused to listen to people Mm -hmm. and when you started saying that oh you know she was leaving him they were splitting up I thought oh my god the police are never going to open this but actually in only a few days for them to open a case get an alert out and then this force pick up on it granted it possibly didn't change the outcome very much unfortunately but at least do you know, someone took him seriously and he didn't just get spurned and she was found weeks later and stuff. Absolutely. No, and I, I definitely felt the same way. I felt very, you know, nervous for him when they were kind of like probing and saying, mm, well, what's actually going on in your marriage? Blah, 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 all of this. Like, it's very frustrating that the police did that anyway and they couldn't just take it seriously um, from the beginning. But like you said, it's so good that they did. It's so good that they faxed out in the end, Um all the details on the case and that it got to the Egmont police and so they knew exactly mm. what was going on at that point but I, there's just so many things in this that are just so like what are the chances that um, Dominique Tarasco was standing by the police at the point when yeah that's bizarre when the when the um, when he drove past when Guillermo drove past and how just... heartbreaking that it was a different set of officers do you know what I mean like yeah. just awful that they were right there and Dominique telling them I just just I don't even know if it's irony or what but the reason they didn't find her is because they were busy being distracted by Dominique telling them to find her like like how is that possible oh and I know and that's how I and then on the flip side of it I'm just like but then they never would have known about this case without him calling the police do you know what I mean that never would have been on their radar yeah absolutely so it's really Mm. really difficult isn't it to like balance that scale on like was he doing the wrong thing or the right thing and Oh, it's just difficult, isn't it? No, I mean, at that point, yeah, it all sounds a bit hectic. Um, But definitely, I think he was doing the right thing. I don't think he quite did enough of the right thing, but I'm... You'd think he's probably the one who has to live with that every day. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, as the police officer said, like if you don't help us, there is blood on your hands, and mm. unfortunately, there is 
to some extent i think mm-hmm. I, f- I find the thing at the car with the car very strange because um maybe in a state of panic you could just miss like describe the car um but actually like you said he is slightly more okay with criminal things so even if he was quite flustered it seems pretty strange that he was adamant it was a green car and then remembered it was a grey one. Do you know what I mean? I just mm. think that sits a little bit weirdly with me. Like I almost wonder whether he was kind of half alerting them and hoping they'd do the rest on their own. And then when he realised they had no lead at all and they weren't getting anywhere, I wonder if then he was like, oh, okay, naturally I'm going to have to tell them the real car if they've got any chance of saving this girl. Oh, that's really, yeah, okay, that's interesting. Because I've always, I, I thought that as well about the whole car situation. I never thought that, oh, maybe he was doing it to mislead them in order for them to kind of, yeah, catch him on their own, like without him. So he'd have kind of plausible deniability yeah. that he didn't give the police anything. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. It could have been that. It definitely could have been that. Um, especially because he knew straight away when they said, we can't see a, a green, see a Ibiza. He was like, oh, like, swear word. Like, I've yeah, got the wrong yeah, car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I definitely want to go away and research a little bit more about Richard and the Lineo family because, Jesus Christ, they just sound... I know I do know what you mean and that they might have just thought we don't want to get involved and minding your own business but also you just think like surely you would it is your business it's happening in your garage do you know what I mean it's mm-hmm. not like this is just something you can turn a blind eye to like you are heavily implicated and the only chance you have to put any of it right is just to like pick up the phone it's not like he's breathing down their necks in their house like you know, he's doing horrendous things in their garage. Mm. Like, you've you've got the time and space to quickly bloody call someone. Mm. I think it's just fear, though. Like, uh, he was such a scary, like, hardened mm. criminal. And everyone knew it. Like, even to the point, like, Dominic Tarasco knew that as well. And he was himself, you know, doing a lot of illegal things and informing on, like, quite bad people. But for whatever reason, informing on Guillaume Mongo was the scariest thing for him to the point that he would yeah. much rather like go to jail or get arrested or whatever do you know what I mean then tell them who he was so I think he obviously was quite a scary individual and you know maybe maybe the Liniers were just those kind of people who thought this is you know uh like like plausible deniability I can just sit here and say well this entire time I stayed in my house yes I gave him cable ties yes I gave him a bottle of water but I didn't know what he was doing because I didn't see anything and maybe they genuinely thought they would get off with that and that they wouldn't be held responsible for you know being a party to it which is of course what they were because they didn't intervene and they fully well knew something was going on but it might just be that they they just did think that that yeah, was like, going to be fine. Yeah, and they sickeningly took then her possessions. That's the bit that oh, know, gets yeah. me. Where I actually just think, are you completely just sort of innocent people who made very bad choices, or actually are you just just kind of fucked up as mm. the rest of them? Because the point in which you know something weird is going on in your garage, and now these nice hills have appeared, and you like them, like you're, if you're anything other than disgusted at that moment, then and I find it very bizarre that he gave it to them anyway to start with is fucking weird and secondly you're just incriminating yourself more do you mm-hmm. know what i mean like you're putting your the evidence the key evidence into someone else's hands mm-hmm. surely you should be destroying them not handing them out as presents and you know leaving and wake three witnesses who can say oh yeah Guillaume gave these to me after he was doing something strange in our garage for a few days mm-hmm. like, it just seems like stu- so stupid that I actually in fact wonder if it was part of the kind of like perversion with that whether yeah. he liked the idea that he'd uh, yeah I don't know 
given like the girl a phone and yeah the, the shoes, shoes and yeah. stuff yeah like if he was still trying to like live in the act and the crime like didn't want to sort of let go of them if that makes sense because yeah, otherwise yeah, it's does. just it's beyond moronic isn't it yeah, that's so true. And hadn't even thought about that, to be honest. But yeah, he was really heavily incriminating himself because they found all of those things before they found mm. anything else that did incriminate him. Obviously, they had the bank card, but other than that, they didn't have really anything else. Maybe it was part of the profession. Maybe it was like hush money, like hush presents. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, if I just give them these like things that I know that they're going to like, um, if the linears were sort of like poorer than them, which they kind of do seem like they might have been, but I am also inferring that. So I don't know that for certain, but it might just be, you know, the way they reacted to like these new possessions, it seemed like very much like actually they probably didn't have things like that. So it was probably but exciting it still seems for them. a huge gamble to oh, yeah. assume that people will put, like protect your life in return for an iPhone. Who knows? Or maybe he's just so callous that it wouldn't cross his mind that they wouldn't want a dead woman's possessions like mm. who knows mm-hmm. and just like so not concerned about getting caught because he probably thinks yeah. that everyone's so scared of him like how would they ever find him in Vauvert when she went missing from well, well she obviously was from Marseille which is 130 kilometers away or whatever but yeah essentially went missing from Egmore which is not the area that obviously they were hiding out in in the garage so yeah mm. I don't know but again stu- I think that in a way speaks to his stupidity too because he probably was thinking that oh they will never find me like you say miles away from where I should have gone missing mm. but actually no like he's left a complete like electronic paper trail mm-hmm. of like the job advert and yeah. meet me here and all of that like actually if you did want to do it you should just drive somewhere completely random mm-hmm. to commit a crime and then leave again do you know what I mean like you shouldn't any kind of pre-planning or premeditation is always going to incriminate you so I probably do lean slightly on the side here that he was just a very stupid horrible man yeah very stupid very horrible very disgusting and good that he'll be in prison for most likely you know most of the rest of his life if not the rest of his life yeah, I can't imagine him ever getting out. He doesn't sound... He's just one of those people I don't think you could ever possibly prove that he isn't a risk to the public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Right, so that is it. That is this episode. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. If you guys want to support the show and get extra content each week, then you can do so over at patreon.com slash infractionthepod. And you can also find us on social media at infraction.thepod. Uh, we hope that you have a good week and we'll see you next Wednesday or we'll see you now on Patreon. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.